Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined as usual by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Once again, welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks, Trey. You know, it's always a lot of fun uh, when we get together because I'm, I'm always thinking about all the con law stuff that we can talk about. <laughs> uh, and so I hope you're as excited as I am, because I think this week we have had more things that directly relate uh, to the Constitution than we have in a long, long time. And as a matter of fact, I have a, a student, Sierra, who really loves the show. And she's, she was pushing us out on, uh, on iTunes and others. And she said, well, you'll, you would never mention me. So Sierra, I'm mentioning you and see all those things on the midterm. We're going to be talking about it in today's show. <laughs> uh, so Ken, uh, yeah, sorry. Midterm, I say good luck on your midterm, Sierra. Yeah. Well, you know, she's been studying, so she should be okay. Um, for other students, they're probably, uh, they're not listening. So it doesn't matter. Uh, but the, I think the big, the biggest story this week, uh, that we want to talk about is that, uh, we had speculated a couple of weeks ago, Ken, uh, about that, that, what would the president do? We were talking, we had a pretty big argument about the, uh, the shutdown. Yep. Well, shutdown is over. We have a bill signed. It didn't have the amount of money that Donald Trump wanted in it. Uh, specifically it didn't have everything he wanted for the wall. and so. He declares, he goes ahead and declares a national emergency this past week so that he can take funds from other sources specifically and put it towards the building of the wall. And additionally, what's interesting about this week is we have the House uh, now being pushed by Nancy Pelosi and others suggesting that they need to end uh, the national emergency. As a matter of fact, she wrote this week that she, quote, I write to invite all members of Congress to co-sponsor Congressman uh, Castro's privileged resolution uh, to terminate this emergency declaration using the termination mechanism within the National Emergencies Act. And this is something we had talked about a little bit, but this is Donald Trump uh, using the National Emergencies Act of 1976. Uh, in response to this. And so there's a lot of things going on here. Uh, And one of the things that's kind of interesting is, Ken, and I I know that you're a constitutional scholar, this is your area, the American Constitution is a little bit unique, comparatively speaking, uh, in that we don't really have any constitutional provision for states of emergency. Rather, in fact, the U.S. Constitution, where it talks about, actually gives powers to Congress, not the president, for example, Congress has the ability to suspend the writ of habeas corpus uh, in cases of rebellion or invasion of public safety may require it. And they can also call for the same uh, militia. So uh, talk to us a little bit about emergency actions and how they're a little unique given the structures of our American Constitution. Yeah, that's a, those are great questions. So the. Um yeah, I, I like that you pointed out that there's only a few provisions that deal with emergencies expressly in our Constitution. I think there's another one um, in the Fifth Amendment uh, where generally grand juries have to be used to indict people, but um, in in time of emergency that doesn't have to be done if there's if there's martial law. So there's a there's a few there's a few minor provisions like that that deal expressly with emergencies. But actually, most most constitutions as old as ours 
don't really address emergencies. And it's, it's really something that, you know, when a lot of new, new constitutions were written after World War II in, in a lot of countries, that, that made them think more about emergency constitutionalism. So um, there's always been a, a debate about that. We did our special show about the Youngstown Steel case a couple weeks ago where we talked. Yeah. So we talked then about um, the, how the Supreme Court has thought about um, executive power to respond to emergencies. And, uh, you know, to summarize that in a sentence or two. The, the Supreme Court's approach to this has been that the president does have a little bit of power um, to go beyond uh, anything that's authorized by statute if that's necessary to respond to an emergency. Um, but, but that the limit on that is that um, the president has to exercise that power in ways that Congress would approve of or, and not in ways that Congress would disapprove of. So that's the, that's the essence of the Youngstown Steel case. Um, now, also, at which again, I'll suggest for those of who are supporters, you can go back and listen to that. There's a whole lot more to that. Uh, and it was a very interesting conversation. But I would just encourage you, if you want to know more about the steel case, to head back to, for supporters at least, uh, to head back to that bonus show. And if you're not a supporter, you know, that's maybe be a reason to, to become one. Yeah. Now, the main, the main controversy that's arising this week with the wall, it's not as pure of a constitutional controversy as in Youngstown Steel. Because a big part of President Trump's argument now is that Congress, in fact, by statute, has authorized him to do some of this. So, um, you know, that's obviously news to Congress. And, and Nancy Pelosi, of course, is saying that she hasn't. But the, the president's been looking at a lot of much older statutes and saying that these older statutes, which are in effect, which are still on the books, um, you give him some of this authority. So so a lot of the um, analysis that I hope we'll get into this hour uh, we're going to have to look at the statutes that he's relying on and, and see what they say. And we're going to have to look at the actions they actually took and see how much they comport with those statutes. So I feel like some of that's going to be a little technical. Um, it's not going to be yeah. as, as big. Well, why as, don't yeah. we even start there, Ken? Uh, and because as a matter of fact, uh, as I'm looking at there, there's two specific statutes that Donald Trump uh, has, has pointed to. And why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, maybe even more than two. Um, so, there's, there is a statute called the National Emergencies Act of 1976. Um, this was a statute that Congress uh, enacted largely to control uh, president's um, uh, exercise of, of national emergency powers. Because before there was a response to it. Uh, yeah. yeah, there had been, um, there'd been about 30 times before 1976 when presidents, um, really under that Youngstown Steel theory that we talked about, presidents would just say, well, there's a national emergency I need to do something in response to it. Uh, I don't have statutory authority, but I'm just going to do it anyhow because that's necessary. Um, that had happened about 30 times by 1976, and uh, the Congress actually thought that was a bad practice. So when they when they passed the act in 1976, they said, "Well, we do realize that there are sometimes emergencies that need to be dealt with quickly, and that only the president can do it." So um, Youngstown says that that may actually be necessary. We can't just get rid of that. But they said, uh, we, want, we want to have a lot more control over um, how presidents do that and what they do. So the National Emergencies Act um, does a couple of things. It, one is it says if the president um, declares a national emergency, uh, Congress has the, both the, um, uh, 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 right, the right and the power to uh to weigh in on that so that yes um, as a matter of fact the act says specifically it requires that not later than six months after a national emergency is declared uh that the house of congress shall meet to consider on a vote uh, a concurrent resolution right and in fact there's a timeline even faster in there if if if, the, if one of the two houses either the house or the senate actually does that sooner than six months 
then the then the other house only has 15 days after that. So, so they um, can't basically drag their feet if one chamber thinks that the president has overstepped right, the, the national emergency. Yes. The, yeah. So, well, so overstepped. Yeah. So there's this is still just about the declaration of the emergency. Right. So this yes, is about whether yes. there's an emergency or not. So there's separate set. That was going to be the second question is what can you do if there is an emergency? But but on, on the question of whether there's an emergency or not, um, the, 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 the Congress is required to vote on that within six months. But if the House of Representatives moves faster, as, as they're doing now, um, then the Senate only gets 15 days after the House votes. And, uh, and that's which not- is specifically what's happening with Nancy Pelosi. The suggestion yeah. here is under the 1976 National Emergencies Act to say this is this is not an emergency. Right, right. Yeah, the House will fairly certainly vote that. She has said that every Democrat will vote that way, and that would be a majority in the House. So, um, so that's going to then throw the ball into the Senate. And of course, very importantly, the Senate is used to operating with a, a filibuster rule that could require sixty votes to break a filibuster. But that's but not in this yeah, case. Not available here. They're they're going to have to take a vote, and 50, 50 votes is going to be enough to carry. So, um, of course, the Republicans have fifty three votes. Um, and if it gets down to, 50, but it's not clear that they have, yeah, they, they have 53 Republicans, yeah. but it's not clear that they have 53 votes. Right. No, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think, um, Collins and, uh, um, Gardner, um, and I think Lamar Alexander, um, have indicated that they're inclined to vote against the president on this. So, you know, they could still change their minds and I don't know that we've got to a fourth one yet and it would take four. Um, but it is possible that the Senate, um, like the house would vote that there's not an emergency. Now, what happens next is extremely interesting, and in all the news reporting that I've read, I have not seen this explained exactly correctly. So I'm gonna I'm gonna explain this part the way I think is correct. Uh, so please do because yeah. th- there has been a lot of really yeah. uh, poor reporting on this, and I think in part because this is a complex issue and it, it can't be uh, yeah. explained in 30 seconds. Right, because it's it's um, one of one of the ironies of what I'm about to. It, talk through is that actually both sides in this controversy, both Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, have to assume that some parts of the National Emergencies Act are unconstitutional. Um, Neither side could win without making that kind of argument. And here's why. Um, So the the National Emergencies Act says that if the House and the Senate um, pass this concurrent resolution declaring that there's no emergency, then that ends the emergency, period. That's, that's what the act says. Um, now, seven years after the National Emergencies Act was enacted, it was enacted in 76. So seven years later, in, in a case called INS versus Chadha, which was decided in 1983, the Supreme Court held that um, legislative vetoes of executive action are unconstitutional. Right. So so that's part of what Trump has to rely on. Right. So so the statute would say that if, if the House and the Senate vote that there's no emergency, than that that uh, Trump's uh, that Trump's Trump's declaration that there is an emergency. But, uh, <laughs> it's tough yeah, talking yeah. about that, isn't yeah. it? Especially yeah. when you're yeah. a card player. But, but what Trump would say is that he, um, under the Chatta case, still must have a constitutional right to veto that. That that the only the only way that um, Congress can take legal action is um, through the constitutional legislative process. Legislative process, right? Which involves both bicameralism and presentment, right? So bicameralism is it has to pass both houses. Presentment is it has to be presented to the president for his signature. Signature, so, yeah, yes. So, so the Chatta case does say that, um, which is so. So that sort of weighs in Trump's favor here, right? That if if the if the House and the Senate pass a joint resolution, well, under the National Emergencies Act, that's enough to end the emergency. But under the Chatta decision, 
um, this is the, that, that's not a proper format for legislative action. The, the procedure has to include, um, uh, under the Constitution, presentment to the president who could veto. Um, so, so Trump is, is both relying on the National Emergencies Act, but also relying on the idea that the legislative veto in the National Emergencies Act is, un, is unconstitutional. Um, and he's, he's probably right about that. Um, but the part that, uh, but the part that um, Trump doesn't want to talk about, and this is another thing that I haven't heard much discussion of in the reporting I've read, is that there is a separate constitutional doctrine that becomes important under Trump's reading. Right? So Trump's reading of the statute is that whatever he says is a national emergency is a national emergency, and that he can, he can veto uh, a, a congressional resolution to the contrary. But, but if that's a correct uh, analysis. If 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 this statute in fact says the president can decide what's a national emergency and whatever he says is an emergency, that that's the emergency. That violates a different constitutional doctrine called the non-delegation doctrine. Um, so the the non-delegation doctrine is a fairly weak doctrine. Um, but what it holds is um, that although Congress can delegate discretion to the executive or to executive agencies, they have to um, l- legislate uh, an intelligible principle. By which that um, discretion could be exercised. So uh, a, a delegation that doesn't give guidelines for how the discretion should be exercised is unconstitutional under the non-delegation doctrine. And Trump's very argument is that he's not bound by any guidelines here. So, mm-hmm. so, so if he's right about that, if his reading of the statute is right, then the statute is unconstitutional under the non-delegation doctrine. But on the other hand, if if if, if Trump's reading of the statute is wrong and the statute does give guidelines. For instance, if it says um, he can only declare a national emergency when there actually is a national emergency, um, then that would leave courts in a position to judge whether there actually is a national emergency. They couldn't just simply defer to him on that. Now, and, and what's interesting about this analysis is effectively that it appears that no matter what moves forward, Trump is going to be building his wall in the meantime. Oh, I wouldn't necessarily say that because there could be litigation fairly quickly, right? So, <laughs> so let's say, um, I mean, there's already a lot of litigation filed, right? So, yes. six, six, we've yeah. got uh, 13 states, I believe, at this point. Up, up to 16 now, I think. Yeah. So, 16. Yeah, okay. There we go. Passed. Yeah. So, a lot of states have filed. You know, uh, the next round of filings that you're going to see is going to come from government contractors because most of the money that he's reallocating to the wall, there's, there's, you know, there's government contractors that already have contracts to do projects under that money. But do you think it's going to be likely that lower courts are actually going to put a stay on his ability uh, to transfer funds? Oh, yeah. I mean, even he thinks it's likely. I think he said so. Uh, so, right, he, he, he went through in his press conference, you know, he more or less announced, I know that the lower courts are going to stop me from doing this, and I'm going to have to try to fast track it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then he said, hopefully they'll give me a fair shake. But yes, I mean, just, just like with the travel ban, which a lot of people are looking at um, as, as a model for this, right? Even though he ultimately did prevail at the Supreme Court um, in on the travel ban case, um, uh, before that, you know, a lot of lower courts put stays on that, and uh, yeah, I think that's certain to happen because there will be so many lower court cases that you know it only it only really takes one lower court judge to put a national mm-hmm. stay on. So yeah, I think it'll get stayed because um, these suits and these suits are already filed, and and there is a lot of questions. The questions that we were just talking about about whether he can declare a national emergency here whether he can persist in that declaration after Congress passes a joint resolution saying that it's not a national emergency. And also um, the separate questions we didn't talk about yet about whether the, um, the particular reallocations of the particular funds that he did are actually authorized under the other statutes. Uh, that Those are all, um, I think, 
uh, cases where there's a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits for the plaintiffs and um, uh, preserving the status quo would be um, the normal way a court would, would, would try to proceed in a case like that. They wouldn't want to let one party change the facts on the ground before they could decide the case. Now, being the ever-present poll, though, I have to ask, and this is what kind of interests me. I mean, I, I love the constitutional part, uh, but there's also that ground where the Constitution and the pragmatism meet, and that is who gains and loses as you move forward. I mean, clearly, President Trump thinks that by making this declaration, whether or not the wall goes up, that he gets a better political position as we move in to election cycle, right? And we've already seen a number of Democrats throw their hats in the ring. Uh, and likewise, as you, we have been talking about a minute ago, Nancy Pelosi and Democrats are, I mean, clearly they want to have a vote here because this gives them a positive vote on something for them for re-election chances. So do you think in this case is who, who comes out on top, politically speaking, as a result of this President Trump constitutional crisis? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think that it, it, there's a difference between the House and the Senate here because most House members are running in basically gerrymandered districts where what really matters to them is what people in their own party think. Um, and they're not really having to reach out that much to the, to the middle. Um, many senators are running in uh, competitive states where you know they have to hang on to um, centrist opinion and and not just feel their own parties and so you know I think the fight um, is beneficial on both sides to House members to um, you know Republicans in Republican districts uh, Democrats in Democratic districts you know their their constituents like like to see them fighting this fight um, yes yeah um, you know the the handful of people that I think this is going to create real heartburn for. Um, are senators who are um, elected in competitive states or even elected in states that w- voted for someone of the opposite party in the last presidential election. So, you know, your, your, your Susan Collinses or your Cory Gardner's in Colorado. Um, I, think, I think this is pretty tough for them. You know, I think they have to, yeah. they can't sit on a fence and, uh, um, you know, and, and, and they've got, you know, so I don't know. I don't know if they win or lose. I think they lose from this, but um, I think that's true no matter whether you're talking about uh, a Republican elected from a, a blue state or whether you're talking about a Democrat elected from a red state. I think those, those are the losers, I think. Yeah, in all honesty, I, I think you're right. And, it's, and it's, it's a little frustrating, or I should say maybe it's emblematic of the situation of the American political system in which the fight itself actually benefits both sides politically. And it might be a suggestion of why we continue to have these kinds of interdepartmental, uh, or I should say, interbranch fighting. Uh, yeah, and that and that's kind of a, an interesting and a frustrating thing altogether. I think it's frustrating. Uh, but- yeah, you and I talked about this last time because I, I think we talked about the idea that um, if Trump actually wanted the wall rather than the fight, then all he has to do is offer up a path to citizenship for DACA. And the Democrats would give him yep. the wall, right? So he could have the wall without a fight, um, but I think he'd rather have he the, wants he, the, he fight. Wants the fight. Exactly. And again, I mean, I don't think that Nancy Pelosi really, you know, wants to have uh, presidential powers expanded. But at the same time, it doesn't hurt her to be able to have a vote on the House floor uh, against a national emergency. 
That's right. And in fact, you know, in, in the presidential, um, you know, now we've got 20 Democratic candidates. And I think, um, you know, as long as these issues are, you know, do we need to stop Trump from doing things like this, then all of the Democrats are united, right? Whereas if you, you know, if you didn't have these kind of fights, then there's other kinds of issues that could be uh, coming to the fore that not all the Democrats are united on. So, so there's that aspect of it, too. Yes, uh, you, you, get, you, you get the illusion of unanimity, yeah. uh, at least in the short term, when you're having this combative nature with, with Trump. Now, uh, kind of as an outgrowth of this week's question, you know, this brings up and highlights another point in the American political system that I think is, inter- is worth investigating. And that is the relationship and the power uh, of the presidency. And one of the things that we had kind of talked about uh, last time a little bit, but I thought we might get into it a little bit more this time, is the president, the presidential power, and how that has evolved over time, especially as it results in these kinds of moments, either not quite as explicitly under the the uh, National Emergencies Act, uh, but in other ways, because this kind of seems to be a persistent, consistent issue. In in American politics, the idea that presidents are going to be the actors and Congress is now the reactor. And I, I think in a large part, that's a result of the fact that we want to have things and we want to get them done now. We have devalued the nature of conversation. And so we find Congress to be boring and dull and full of committees <laughs> uh, and, and presidents take Action and and so two of the ones I thought we might kind of talk about, Ken, and again this I think fits into your uh, your areas is you know kind of two historic examples where presidents have pushed this line uh, have been uh, uh, FDR and George W. Bush. Uh, FDR does it in the context of Executive Order uh, ninety sixty six, which he very famously uh, interns Japanese Americans or allows for the possibility of Japanese internment uh, by allowing the military to have portions of the country where they can remove people, and in this case, uh, uh, Japanese Americans. And then in the case of President uh, George W. Bush in 2002, where he argues that presidents have, and this is something we've been uh, talking here at Oklahoma Christian University in some of my classes, the inherent constitutional uh, power, this inherent constitutional power in this case, uh, to wiretap, in other words, to listen to the citizens in time of conflict. Now, again, what's happening right now is a little bit different than this, but it is interesting. And that was from the 2004 memo that uh, that leaked. So what do you think in more general terms about presidential power vis-a-vis Congress? Uh, and I think because right now we're seeing that playing out in a specific instance. Ken. Yeah, well, of course, like you, I am concerned. Both of the examples you just cited, um, I don't think those were good things that presidents did that or that they were allowed to do that. Um, on the other hand, though, uh, presidential powers in wartime, when you have a congressional declaration of war, um, as you did in World War II, and you know, in, it, after September 11th, Congress um, invoked the War Powers Act and, and authorized the use of military force, um, those, those, th- that's, that doesn't raise quite the same issues of unilateral executive authority, because when Congress authorizes the president to use all the or ordinary incidents of war, um, you know, things like detaining people um, is, is an ordinary incident of war. And so 
when the Japanese detentions were challenged, um, it wasn't so much that the uh, president didn't have the authority to detain prisoners of war in wartime. Um, the main issue there related to the racial discrimination that was involved, which which raises separate issues under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. But but it wasn't really a presidential power issue. Um, you know, there's the detentions um, from 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 Korematsu case in World War II up to the Guantanamo detentions uh, in the War on Terror. Um, yeah, the, the Supreme Court consistently says, well, if if we've actually authorized the use of military force and we're and Congress has declared a war and, and given the president authority to wage that war, detaining people is part of that power. Um, although although yeah, it shouldn't be done on a strictly racially discriminatory basis. They've been the case in Korematsu. Um, the other the other thing about the surveillance, I think it's the same. Um, you know, that was a wartime. There, there was authorization uh, for wartime authority to use military methods and military uh, t- t- tactics and techniques and resources against uh, Al Qaeda. And so, you know, I think the court used the phrase, um, 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 you know, signals, uh, you know, gaining signals intelligence um, for what we might just call ordinary eavesdropping on phone calls. But the yeah, but the idea is that you know you could fit that in a framework where that's a that's an accepted um, uh, military power that's independent of war. So I, I think the court is has not been that willing to put significant caps on the the methods that presidents use to wage war when Congress actually authorizes them to wage war. But I, I it, it is a little different when you're talking about um, presidents claiming power to take actions. That, that Congress never authorized, and particularly right. when Congress didn't authorize the war. Now, and here's the thing that I've been thinking about, and the reason I bring these two up is, do you, do you think that as time has gone on, this is a question I've had in my own mind, that we have, or be, Congress has slowly but surely ceded more and more power to the president? And I agree with you, right? This has originally taken the form of, the war power issue, but it, it, are what we seeing with Trump? Is this maybe simply the logical extension of that? Uh, so, in these certain kinds of circumstances, we have emergencies, and therefore we have war, and we have to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Uh, but we have often expanded that definition of what a conflict is. Presidents generally try to expand the definition of what those conflicts are. We have war on drugs and war on poverty to use that kind of language to activate the idea that presidents should be taking more radical steps more rapidly, whether or not that actually invokes any true legal precedence. Uh, but at, at, is Trump maybe just, is he unusual or is this what we ought to expect presidents will continue to push for since this is what we ask them to do? Yeah, I think a little of each there. So it, has, it is certainly true that, you know, going back to Lincoln, um, you've had presidents that, um, you know, just took it on their own initiative to do a lot of things that, that Congress didn't ask them to do, uh, didn't authorize them right. to do. Um, and As a matter of fact, I mean, Lincoln himself would suggest that his actions, reappropriating money, uh, you know, banning mail and censoring the mail and others yeah. were, were constitutionally dubious. Uh, he, he admits that they're constitutionally dubious. But I just got to do him. It yeah. is more or less his argument. Yeah, I mean, yeah, one of my favorite examples of Lincoln saying something like you just said is, um, you know, as you pointed out earlier, the Constitution does allow Congress to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, but does not allow the president unilaterally to do it. But but he did, which Lincoln, is what Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln did. Does. Yeah, he did it unilaterally, and then 
you know, when, when people said to him, well, you, you can't do that. You know, only Congress can do that. Um, he says, well, I, I know about that law, but if I don't, if I don't suspend habeas corpus right now myself, then the country's going to fall apart and I won't be able to enforce any of the other laws. So I can either enforce all the laws but one um, or I can enforce that one. Right. And so that, that's how Lincoln actually phrased it. And uh, so, yeah, he, which is it, the it, beginning of inherent, yeah, inherent uh, vested absolutely. power. <laughs> so so to think of it, I think of it moving a little more pendulum like like I agree with you that the general tenor of the trend over 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 centuries has been towards more and more executive power. But I think the way that's gone forward is kind of like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. So Congress has, you know, pushed in the other direction sometimes also. And these important statutes of the 1970s, post-Watergate statutes, um, both the National Emergencies Act and the War Powers Act, um, Congress passed those, you know, specifically to reclaim power from executives that executives uh, had seized. Um, so if you'll give, if you'll allow me, I actually could read the paragraph that I emailed to you earlier, which I really like. Yeah, from the uh, um, this is from the Senate report. The, the Senate Government Affairs Committee wrote the National Emergencies Act, and then they 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 voted to bring it to the floor, and they they gave a report to the to the other senators saying, "Here's why we need the National Emergencies Act, and here's why we hope you all vote for it." And they say that the the statement is um, this is again from the authors of the National Emergencies Act in 1976. Enactment of this legislation would end the states of emergency under which the United States has been operating for more than 40 years. So going back to FDR, um, it would also ensure that the extraordinary powers which now reside in the hands of the chief executive, powers delegated by the Congress to seize property and commodities, to organize and control the means of production, to assign military forces abroad and restrict travel, that those powers could only be utilized only when emergencies actually exist. And then only under safeguards of congressional review, reliance on emergency authority intended for use in crisis situations would no longer be available in non-crisis situations. At a time when governments throughout the world are turning with increasing desperation to an all-powerful executive, this legislation, the National Emergencies Act, is designed to ensure that the United States travels a road marked by carefully constructed legal safeguards. Um, That's what they thought they were doing in 1976. Yes. And, you know, and here's and I'm glad you say this because I, I kind of want to end on this topic here. And that is that you pointed out rightfully that in the 1970s, uh, the National Emergency Act, for example, is a reaction to pre- then president, former president Nixon and what had happened during his tenor, uh, tenure. Now, but it seems to me as a student of uh, Congress and the presidency at the political level, but not the legal level that both sides hate it when the other one controls and they don't get it. And you even got kind of a hint of that uh, this past week when Pelosi kind of, I would say, threatens, well, look, Trump, if you do this, then when our president gets in there, well, we're going to declare a national emergency about this, yeah. you know, about uh, climate, which again, please hear me right. I'm, I'm not suggesting that climate isn't an issue, but uh, those kinds of threats and that kind of back and forth, we see that also in the in the Senate's rulemaking process, we were talking about, you know, filibusters and when that's allowed and that's changed over time and everybody hates it when they're in uh, power and they like it when they're not in power. Do you, uh, given that though, can, that's a really kind of idealistic uh, position, but will it ever pragmatically take off because will the other, will either side ever, when they have power, be willing to be constrained? 
Uh, no, probably not. But um, but the courts can adjudicate some of these disputes, right? And of course, the courts are another branch that's been whose power has been growing over time, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we. Well, you know, and it's funny that you say that because, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but at the same time, maybe I don't quite have as much faith in the court <laughs> as you do. That also be because you're, a, uh, you know, a con law scholar and, you know, I'm not. <laughs> think, think, think again about Youngstown, which we did talk about. It's a case you know well. Uh, I mean, in that case, President Harry Truman says um, we're actually fighting the Korean War. We need steel. We can't have steel production shut down by labor strikes in Youngstown, Ohio, at the steel mills. So in order to make sure you know, we can prosecute the war properly, I need to nationalize and take over this, this steel mill. And um, the court did say no, right? They stopped him. And, uh, that's true. Yeah, and so I think you do see that sometimes. Um, now, it, it, you know, that's not an everyday kind of case. That's a, that's a classic case in part because of its, um, uh, you know, how uniqueness. Unique. Yeah. Extraordinary, yeah, but yeah. it's not, yeah. we, we, and you wouldn't help. You would hope it's not happening every day. We we would have a different. <laughs> you know, there was there was an interesting one um, that maybe um, conservatives would like that I think went in a similar used a similar kind of reasoning. There was a case called the uh, Medellin case that involved um, an order that President uh, George W. Bush gave um, to the Texas courts. So he ordered the Texas courts to comply with international treaty obligations. Um, in particular, um, there's a treaty obligation under the Vienna Treaty on Consular Relations that says if someone who's a citizen of a foreign country gets arrested for a crime in the United States, um, they have a right to contact their embassy for um, assistance in defending themselves in court. And it was sort of an ordinary practice in Texas that when the Texas Rangers, uh, you know, anybody arrested uh, Mexicans in Texas for crimes, they did not contact the Mexican consulate. And uh, they had a lot of people convicted and in prisons um, who never were afforded their rights under this Vienna Convention. And President Bush um, it just issued an executive order, and he said to the Texas courts, you have to make sure that uh, when Mexicans get arrested in Texas that they can contact their consulate, and you have to give new trials to the Mexicans that um, didn't have the benefit of that and that are now uh, in prison. And that's one where the Supreme Court um, ruled uh, against President Bush, and they, they said uh, there's no executive power um, even when there's been a ratified treaty like the Vienna um, Vienna uh, uh, Convention on Consular Relations for the president to just give orders like that on his own initiative. So sometimes they rein in executive power uh, in, in those kind of ways. I'd be honest, I was not familiar with that. Yeah, it's, a, it's a sleeper. Yeah, it's a sleeper, but it's one that, you know, I think where a lot of conservatives would be glad there because the, the, the federalism interests of the Texas courts were actually protected, yeah, upheld. upheld, right, against, against a, a presidential order. Um, well, interesting. Well, since we're on, you know, uh, the, the details of the Constitution, uh, and we've been talking now, obviously, both about the specific this week with the uh, the emergency declaration and presidential power more, uh, and generally, the other huge story this week uh, was uh, McCabe and his sixty minutes interview, and, and and all of the things that are surrounding this. Now, there's a lot here to be talked about, uh, but some of the most interesting ones. Uh, relate to the fact that uh, Andrew McCabe, he was the former acting FBI director and he went on 60 Minutes and he suggests that he and the Deputy Attorney General Rod Bronstein had had uh, at least some kind of discussion about if there would be any support for removing President Donald Trump under the 25th Amendment. 
And what's this is interesting because this has really become a point of contention on the right. Uh, we've seen a lot of people asking and talking about this uh, on our Facebook feed. Uh, so we've seen a lot of outrage to the point that, you know, even uh, Senator Lindsey Graham uh, was arguing that there needed to be hearings specifically on the comments uh, from McCain. And this brings up, I think, another set of interesting constitutional issues. So for listeners, you may or may not know that uh, originally in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, uh, the Constitution states that in, when there's a case of the removal of the office president on his either his death or his resignation or his inability to discharge his powers, uh, the, the same shall devolve on the vice president is what it says. But this is a kind of a, a weird issue. And I, I know historically speaking, what does it mean for those to devolve? And so when William Henry uh, Harrison would die in uh, 1841, uh, then vice president who would then assume the roles and the powers of the presidency, John Tyler, would very forcefully assert that he had become president. But that was kind of um, for debate. That was his reading on it. So enter the 25th Amendment. Uh, and the 25th Amendment in the fourth section uh, outlines that uh, what will happen is that the president, the vice president, in fact, will become uh, president, but it also has provisions for if a president can't execute his or her duties uh, and the ability of the vice president in conjunction with the majority of the principal officers of the executive departments can provide by uh, uh, memo effectively to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House and the representatives. And this is what's been setting off the firestorm because on the left, we have had individuals say, look, this is, this is a valid constitutional process. Talking about it is no more invalid than, than us discussing the, the National Emergencies Act. And this has been constituted on the right as almost a coup or a coup attempt. As a matter of fact, we'll talk in a minute about uh, some of Trump's comments about this. So, uh, Ken, from your point of view as a constitutional law scholar, uh, what's going on here with this? And, and what do you think about the, the the actual political debate occurring after the interview with McCain? Um, <laughs> let me start with the Constitution. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of there, yeah. isn't there? I, I basically said, look, here's a thousand yeah. things, Ken. Can you can you in just a few minutes? <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the 25th Amendment um, was um, uh, ratified uh, actually in, in response to the uh, Kennedy assassination. And so um, people start thinking, um, what happens? Well, what happens if you lose both? Yeah, what, ha- what happens if you lose both? Or what happens if, uh, if, you ha- if Kennedy hadn't died right away and you have a president yep. who's in a coma um, for a long time but isn't dead? So, um, so the, you know, the Kennedy assassination wasn't the first time there was an assassination, but it, but it did lead to um, uh, questions about that. Um, also, the other thing that the, the 25th Amendment did was it provided for uh, replacement of a, of a vice president. Um, so there was nothing in the Constitution yes. before that that did that. So we'd had a number of other because we we should mention, as a matter of fact, that you know the Constitution for the president only has two options: you have vice president, and then you have Speaker of the House. Uh, and then you're right; there's nothing for the vice president. Yeah. Well, the Constitution actually doesn't put the Speaker in the House in the line of succession. That that comes from the statute, not from the Constitution. Uh, that, that's from the, that's from. The, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yes. So the, so yes, the yes. vice president is is the successor in the Constitution, but but the constitution didn't provide to replace the vice president if if the vice president actually assumed the presidency so so Correct. so in yeah. all the in all 
or what it meant for it to be to have those powers and duties versus taking over as president was vague. Yeah. I mean, in cases where presidents actually died in office, there was no serious controversy about that. It was understood always that um, if a president died in office, then the vice president became president. Um, but but the the questions arose much more around, well, then would we have would we have a vice president then? And until the 25th Amendment, the answer was always no. Nobody could be vice president if the vice president became president because there was no other method mm-hmm. to become vice president. And, uh, and, and, and also um, the concerns about people um, becoming disabled beyond the ability to perform their, their offices. So, um, so, so they weren't, um, I would say it wasn't necessarily um, in the forefront in, 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 the, in the early 1960s of the framers of the 14th Amendment's mind to think about well, what would happen if... Um, you mean the 25th, sorry, yeah, the 25th Amendment? Amendment. Yeah. Which, which, I'm sorry, yes. yeah. I, I, I thought that's yeah, what you meant, yeah, but no, I thought I'm, we better yes, clarify that. <laughs> when the, so the 25th Amendment is ratified in 67, but it had been worked on, you know, from the Kennedy assassination in 63 on until its ratification in 67. And they were definitely think about, thinking about things like shootings. They, they weren't thinking about, about mental disability that just um, occurred, you know, so, or maybe even mental disability that might be thought that the person who got elected president already had even before they got elected president i suppose um, which is right. what, you know at least one of the possible readings of what the mccabe uh, conversations are about um but the uh so, so i don't know that we i don't know how much tea leaves we can read here i'd say that it's a situation that probably wasn't contemplated and that certainly never came up until now um on the other hand i would put myself on the side of saying you know it is a constitutional process so even though it's never been used before you know, there's going to have to be a first time for anything, and and it's not unconstitutional to use a constitutional process, even if it's even if it's novel. Well, and, and it couldn't be uh, considered illegal. Uh, when you say coup, you are you are obviously saying something that is illegal, yeah. uh, and so to have a conversation about a legal passage and to call that a coup seems a stretch to me. So maybe if we. Bo- Pull that that language back uh, and say maybe give the, give the, give that a better reading. Do you think that maybe that kind of conversation in this context is unwise then, instead of yeah. <laughs> the more inflammatory coup conversation? Yeah, I mean it's funny for it to be coming from the FBI, and you know the the uh, the the Twenty Fifth Amendment contemplates that it would come from the the president's own cabinet secretaries who he nominated. Well, specifically the vice president to initiate it. Um, it's the vice president and a majority of the principal officers. Um, I don't know that it says who has to initiate it, but it can't. The process can't start unless the vice president and a majority of the principal officers of the executive department can be both. Yeah. Okay. So you'd have to have, um, uh, you know, some majority among the secretary of defense and the secretary of the treasury and the attorney general. Um, along with the vice president. But it also seems odd in the pragmatic consideration here that, I mean, there doesn't appear to be any indication that Mike Pence would have gone along. I mean, so even had they been able to have a majority of the principal officers, what's the likelihood that Mike Pence is going to say, yeah, you know what? I think we should send this on to the Senate into the House. Right. No, I don't think there was any likelihood it would happen and it didn't happen. But, but you know, maybe the idea would be that, well, one of the principal officers of the executive department is the attorney general and the the FBI works under his supervision, and you know maybe it's just the question of trying to decide whether to talk to the Attorney General about whether he wants to talk to Mike Pence, right? So certainly someone's going to have to talk to Mike Pence, and it probably would be one of the other principal officers of an executive department that would do that, um, even under a proper Twenty Fifth Amendment uh, um, uh, action. So 
I guess I don't find it. Um, I, I don't. I don't find it so suspect. Or there is an innocent explanation. But on the other hand, you know, subordinates in an executive department are probably not really where this should start. I think it, it should probably start with um, uh, um, principal officers of an executive department, which would be the attorney general of the justice department. In closing, Ken, what do you think is going to be the political outcome, if any, for this? Uh, once again, Trump has taken to bashing McCabe. Uh, and, and I think the more the more interesting tie-in is this, this is a chance to maybe try to club the Mueller uh, investigation. There's talk about when that's going to be coming to a close, maybe relatively sooner. Now, there's tea really yeah. for you. Uh, but be, be that as it may, uh, as yet another kind of a, a, a bludgeon to attack that with. Has McCain done, sorry, has McCabe done any favors for Mueller? I mean, why not just shut up and let that play out? It just seems like you're putting a club in the hands of Trump to, to bash and advance this narrative. And I really haven't figured out what the benefit other than potentially him selling some more books is. Well, I mean, I think it's this is one of these things where it's probably not going to move a ball very much. People people who are suspicious of the uh, Mueller investigation, as, as you just suggested, yeah, they're not going to be very impressed by anything McCabe is saying now. But people who, um, you know, who are who are um, looking forward to the outcome of the Mueller investigation, who are putting faith and trust in it. I don't, I don't think anything McCabe is saying is going to undermine any of that. He was. He was only around like really for the first day or two of the Mueller investigation. He had no significant role in it before he was fired. So, um, I yeah. Well, the, yeah, yeah. Well, then that's the question. Effectively, it, 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 was he part of that? Should he have been part of that? But I mean, the yes. Mueller investigation's been going on for uh, not quite two years, but um, you know, the better part of two years. And you know, McCabe. Yeah, as I say, he was he never he had no role in it. Um, within the first uh, after the, maybe the first day or two of it, so I don't I don't see that that could undermine anything that um, comes out of the Mueller investigation. I did see it reported today, just before we went on air, that the a Justice Department spokesman told an AP reporter that yesterday's reporting that the um, Mueller report is going to come out next week uh, is not true, and that the Mueller report is not going to come out next week. So um, so we'll see. That seemed awfully yeah. quick yeah. to me, but I, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I try never to speculate on when things will happen because I'm generally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, Mueller keeps the, it's got to be the tightest ship that anyone's ever run in the government in terms of no information ever really leaking out of there. So yeah. who knows what they're doing there? I, yeah. McCabe, yeah, uh, McCabe, I before, before we leave the topic, one thing I would say is I think to the extent that he now has gone through the vetting process with the FBI that he had to go through to be allowed to publish his book because he was subject to um, some censorship there. Um, what that does free him up to do, which might be useful in terms of his own goals, is anything that they let him publish in the book, he now basically has the green light that he can go and talk about that stuff to, to Congress in public hearings and things like that. So to the extent that the House may want to do investigations, um, I think McCabe is now in a position to give them some ideas about things they might want to investigate. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Well, what I will say, Ken, is it has been a wonderful show again with you, and I hope that you've enjoyed it with oh, me yeah. as well. Uh, and listeners, I want you to know that it doesn't have to be over. Uh, if you are interested, we will have a bonus show that we're going to be recording in just a minute, uh, Ken and myself. And we're going to actually be looking at a, a really interesting uh, uh, court outcome that relates back to what we've been talking about before. We're going to have a conversation about uh, the recent 
uh, filing against the Washington Post uh, concerning the uh, Covington Catholic student. So if you're interested in some more, please know if you become a supporter, you will be getting a bonus show sent your way. And this week, Ken and I are going to be taking a look at the Covington Catholic suit against the Washington Post. But in the meantime, I want to thank you all for listening. And even if you aren't a supporter, if you can rate us on iTunes, if you can give send us reviews, this helps us immensely. Even send that episode to one of your students. I'd appreciate it a whole lot. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer um, Murano, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday, Ken and I. I hope you'll join us 